Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. The question today is, how do we find deeper meaning in life? How do we connect more deeply with the Dharma? Certainly, that's a question that I think we all have. I know that just today I've had a really busy morning. And I was running around doing things, going to the store and packaging up something that needs to be returned. There was really a couple ways to do that. One way is I've got to get this stuff done so I can meditate and so I can be present. Or the other way is uh, I'm not waiting that this is my practice. And as you know, I spend a lot of my time working with people who are dying. It's very easy for someone who has a life-threatening illness to feel that they're kind of waiting for something to happen, that right now they're taking drugs or they're really tired or they're having the side effects of chemotherapy to the extent that it's really difficult for them to be present and consequently they're waiting for things to get better before they connect. There is a a book called Lojong or Mind Training that has these different slogans about being present. We've talked about them before. One of the slogans is the Tonglen, taking and sending practice. 
Another one is drive all blames into oneself, not blaming the environment for how you're feeling. And there are a number of these slogans that have to do with what could be called patience or perseverance. Norman Fisher has collected a few of these that have to do with perseverance, and I'm going to read his versions of these slogans. Turn all mishaps into the path, number one. Number two, drive all blames into one. Number three, be grateful to everyone. Number four, see confusion as Buddha and practice emptiness. Number five, which is my favorite, do good, avoid evil, appreciate your lunacy, pray for help. And the last one is whatever you meet is the path. And that last one is really the summary of all of them, that whatever we meet is the path. Now, the problem is that many of us don't have a clear dharmic path. I was with Maharaji, and part of my path is seeing it all as God in the way he suggested. One time somebody asked Maharaji, what is the best form to worship God? Because in Hinduism, there are so many gods. And he said, the best form to worship God is every form. So that's just not the, 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 the statues and pictures on the altar, but it's the people we meet. At the same time, for many of you, you're not necessarily a devotional person. Somebody was just saying that your path is more trying to see it all as the path, seeing that it's all that reality. For me, I've got three main practices. My main practice is coming back to my sensations all the time, being in my body, feeling grounded, feeling centered, feeling my heart. A second practice is more of a devotional thing, and that has to do with saying mantras, remembering the guru, loving. And then the third practice is what could be called more tantric or even non-duality of seeing it all as the beloved, realizing that even living in Chicago when you'd rather be in some more exciting place uh, is the path. That, in fact, Maharaji said, all cities are Benares. Benares is the holiest place, but Chicago is just as holy as Benares. All mountains are Mount Kailash. Even the hill around the corner is just as holy as Mount Kailash. All rivers are the Ganges. Certainly there are special places that people travel to as a way of going on pilgrimage and deepening their relationship with the Dharma. But really, many of us, we have families, we have jobs, we have lives that require us to be in a, in a certain place that the mind can say is less than ideal. So is it possible to see your life just the way it is, as one that has the most meaning for you? There are a couple of women in one of my groups, older women whose husbands died roughly 10 years ago, and they're both feeling depressed. They're both feeling that their life doesn't have much meaning. And what they mean by meaning is really the children are gone, the grandchildren are far away, the husband has died, they're not working anymore. 
what is the external thing they can do to find meaning? To me, I think there's a deeper way of looking at purpose or meaning. And that is, is it possible to find meaning in a moment-to-moment way? For instance, one meditation we often do is focusing on the breath. Can we find meaning in our relationship with the breath, which in some more superficial way is one of the more boring things there is? Each breath is pretty much like the other breath, although when attention and concentration deepen enough, breaths begin to become very distinct and different. And in fact, we can have a a very intense relationship with the process of breathing when, when concentration is deep enough. I'd like to read a couple of quotes from Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. He was imprisoned in a concentration camp during the Second World War. He writes about finding meaning, and he says things like, when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. And he says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. I've been in very dramatic spiritual situations where there were very intense teachings going on, and then that situation would end and I'd go back into a more normal life. It was difficult to find the intensity without it coming from outside, without me being in a place where people were really challenging me to be be present all the time. But eventually it's something we have to find ourselves. There are really a couple of ways of going about this. And one is yoga, cultivating the mind. You do certain hatha yoga postures. You, you control your breathing. You control what you eat, what goes in your mouth, what comes out of your mouth in terms of right speech. And yoga is a gradual process of purification and transformation. But there's another practice called tantra, which Really, what I was planning to talk about today until that question came before we started the recording. And Tantra is really the third step of this tantric three step that I've talked about. This, the first step is awareness, letting go of the narrative, letting go of the concepts. Can we really be with things exactly the way they are? The second step is can we open the heart of compassion, loving kindness, gratitude toward what it is that we're experiencing? But the third step is the tantric step, and that is going beyond pure and impure, being able to see what is being experienced as not good or not bad, but it is reality, that in a way we are empowered to become the the deity. We are Chinrezi, we are Hanuman, we are Christ, and we're experiencing reality from this place that it's all a manifestation of what is pure and good and impure and ungood, and all of those things are really, in a fundamental sense, not what we have to judge and discriminate about. One time when we were with Maharaji, Ramdas was having a difficult day. And he came to Maharaji and he said, I feel so impure. 
And Maharaji looked up the sleeve of Ramdas's shirt and said, I don't see any impurity. One of the ways of finding meaning in our lives is this path of Tantra, which I find a lot juicier. For me, has a lot more pull than just trying to be a yogi. And it's kind of hard to be a yogi here in the West, I must say. So that Tantra teaches work hard to liberate yourself from want, but we're doing it in a way that there's some understanding that there isn't any part of reality that isn't capable of revealing the divine, revealing ecstasy, and that everything we experience is full of light and awareness. I understand that for many of us, we're in situations where there's a lot of repetitive experience. We get up, we brush our teeth, we put on our clothes, we have a cup of tea, we make breakfast, and every day is pretty much the same. And it's easy to get caught in the sameness and let that dampen our perseverance, our curiosity, our investigation. One of the ways of practicing Tantra is opening to grace in every moment. Each moment, no matter what the content, there is presence, there is grace that's available. So if we go back to that tantric three-step, the first step is being aware of the content of experience. The second step is in the compassion stage is not being so caught up in the content, but being more aware of our relationship with experience. It's a loving, compassionate, grateful, forgiving relationship. But the third stage, the tantric stage, is we're not so much interested even in the relationship, but in the nature of experience itself. In this moment, in this simple moment where I'm talking and you're listening or you're distracted or you're feeling your body or whatever it is that's going on, is that sense of wholeness, of reality with a capital R, of presence, of grace, is that available? I would be very surprised if everyone who's listening to these words hasn't had that experience again and again and again. And the more we have it, the easier it becomes to let that be a touchstone that we can go to in any moment of our lives. The famous story of Gandhi as he's assassinated and as he's falling over dying with uh, someone had just shot him in the chest and he was dying. He said, Ram, Ram, Ram. Even in the moment of dying, he was with God. He was with, in that tantric relationship, that was not separating him from the sense of presence. There are different ways to come to this. One is just this direct remembering of grace, of the nature of reality. Some people are more devotional. You have some connection with Christ or with Maharaji or whoever it is, and you work with feeling the Guru's presence in your life in every moment. There's also just this way of being in your body, that in Tantra, the notion is that your body is a microcosm of the universe. So that right now, can you be in your body in a way that it is reflecting your relationship with 
reality and you're not pulling back, that you're able to surrender, you're, into, you're able to die into the body. As an example, right now, feel sensations in your body, where they predominate. There's sensations all through your body. Just let your awareness go wherever sensations are predominating. Awareness of sensation, first stage of the healing path. The second stage is then, can we begin to become aware of our relationship with sensations? Can there be an open, accepting, intimate, loving relationship with the sensations as they're rising in your body? The sensations themselves are the vehicle through which the heart begins to open. The heart opening is not dependent on sensations being pleasant, but whatever the content is, whatever the quality of sensation, one is having this intimate, kind, loving relationship with sensation as it arises. And can that take us then to this third tantric stage where we begin to experience in the spaciousness, the selflessness of the open heart, the nature of sensation as reality with a capital R. There's a sacredness to each arising moment of sensation. We're using sensation as a gateway into this tantric relationship with the beloved. The beloved can only be every experience. It's not only the good stuff, it's whatever is arising. So that we're using awareness of sensation, moving to a loving, compassionate, forgiving relationship with sensation, to being with the nature of the experience itself. In doing this, it is challenging because it requires the death of the egoic relationship with our experience. We're dying into direct naked experience. I would suggest that this practice that we've just done very briefly is something you do many times during the day for a very short period. If you can just rest in this nature, this, this open sacred nature of things for a minute here and 30 seconds there and a minute and a half there, rather than trying to, for half an hour, for 45 minutes, for an hour, resting in presence. I think that would be a very healing, good, strong practice. One of the secrets to this is not getting caught up in concepts or narratives about the initial experience. We feel a sensation and very often arises some story, that is my right knee and it doesn't feel good, maybe I should do something to try to make it feel better. Can we be almost surfing the arising of sensation moment to moment without falling off into concepts or opinions about what it is that we're experiencing? Catching hold of the first moment of perception rather than naming, resting in the feeling, the arising perception.
the vibration of experience itself. We can have this tantric relationship with the sensations in our body, with the experience of eating, the experience of loving another human being, or the experience of just walking down the street. I find that occasionally working with this more tantric, juicy uh, quality of surrender into the nature of things inspires me a bit more than just trying to be with my breath for an hour at a time. No matter what our life circumstances might happen to be, whether we're working with dying people, whether we're a mother, whether we're in a stuck in a traffic jam, each moment is available for this practice. Kabir, the poet Kabir says, wherever you are is the entry point into awakening. Everywhere you are is the entry point. At the same time, most of us are caught in addiction so that with certain kinds of boredom or certain kinds of anxiety or certain kinds of depression, we get caught in grasping or aversion and aren't able to have this tantric relationship with things because it is so strongly conditioned from so long ago that we don't want to feel that quality of anxiety, that quality of boredom, that quality of depression, that quality of agitation. So, for instance, one could say a mantra from these different stages of the healing path. From the first stage, you're saying the mantra, you're aware of what you're feeling, you're aware you're feeling some separation from the object of the mantra, the God that or the, the quality of spaciousness that you're invoking. And you're aware of that sense of separation. You're reaching out, you're invoking to go beyond that sense of separation. And then the second stage is there's a relationship. The very words themselves are creating a loving relationship with the mantra. But the third stage then is that the mantra itself is the deity that the words that we're saying are awakeness. It's not something we're trying to find or connect with because we can't be unconnected. <laughs> we can imagine we can be disconnected, but in, in truth, we never are. And we've had that experience of rapture at times when it's a perfect day out in nature or your favorite piece of music or an animal or a baby is there in a very beautiful, loving way or you're loving another human being or God. But can we find that in more simple moments like right now? Is there any way that right now is any more or less rapturous and holy than when you're going to sleep tonight. So that's all kind of theoretical, but at least those first two steps, at least the beginning of, it's about can I be present with my reaction to these external circumstances? And once again, there's that slogan, drive all blames into oneself. You take responsibility. Here's the way I'm feeling. I'm aware of that let go of the concepts, let go of the story, open my heart to this, 
And in this openness, in the spaciousness, in the selflessness, it is revealed that it's beyond pure and impure. So the question is, in my time in working with patients who are dying, have a lot of them been afraid at the end of their lives? First of all, the people that come to me are a very strongly pre-selected subpopulation of people who are dying. They are one people. They are people who are asking for spiritual support, and consequently, they're mostly people who have done spiritual practice during their lives, and they tend to be less afraid than the general population. Although it is certainly possible to have notions and concepts about spirituality, and then to feel that you are doing a bad job of approaching death. And not only are you dying, you're feeling guilty about dying. You have new age guilt. And we have had clients who have said things like, I've been a long time meditator and I'm dying now and I'm making a mess of this. I can't even die well. And the volunteer who recounted the story to me, who was a therapist said to the client, Whose voice is that? And the guy said, oh, my God, it's my mother. She won't even let me die well. <laughs> All fear is fear of death. And fear of death equals lack of enlightenment. So until people are fully enlightened, there's going to be fear of death. Because it's rooted in where one is identified with separateness and not with wholeness. Very often people might say things like, I'm not afraid of dying. But what they're really saying is, I'm not afraid of the concept of dying. But if you put their head underwater for 90 seconds, they would be afraid of dying. People say something like, I'm not afraid of death, but I'm afraid of the pain that might be part of the dying process. I don't think that those can really be teased apart in that way. When you actually do die, you don't have a body anymore. One of the first things that happens after you die, according to the Tibetans, is that you die into the light. You die into your true nature. They say it's as bright as a thousand suns. It's pretty bright. <laughs> and if you haven't practiced that depth of love and light in your life, it's going to be overwhelming. A lot of the practice we do is about learning to bear the painful, the difficult, transmute suffering. But there's another practice that's equally important, which is learning to bear love, learning to bear light, learning to trust the surrender, the radical surrender into profound spaciousness. People come to me and say, you know, I've meditated and I'm ready to die and I'd like you to help me. And yet, if you scratch the surface enough underneath it, there's still fear. Sometimes I've had the experience of being around people who haven't had any spiritual concepts about who they are, but they spend a lot of time in nature. They've watched nature die and, and be born and animals uh, die and be born. And they're less afraid of dying than somebody who's been a meditation teacher for 20 years. We had two consecutive people at the dying center. One was a uh, someone who had been a meditation teacher for 30 years. And the other was a guy who had been a shepherd 
taking care of sheep in the mountains at the New Mexico-Colorado border. And he was much less afraid of dying than the meditation teacher was afraid of dying, which was kind of surprised me in my naivete at the beginning of my career, if you will. Fear of death is fear of life. Are we afraid of nuclear holocaust? Are we afraid of our toddler causing trouble with the neighbors? Are we afraid of the lady in the kitchen who's eating my groceries? You know, that it's it's all it's all dying. Can we die into each of these kind of circumstances? And often we can't. Often we're thinking, why is the world behaving like this? It should behave like that, <laughs> but it doesn't. Let me just say a couple more things in response to John's remarks about wisdom and compassion. At the relative level, compassion is experienced as kinship with all beings. At the absolute level, compassion is experienced as space. That is wisdom. We could have a whole conversation about the wisdom of emptiness. And emptiness really means empty of concept and empty of the concept of me and empty of the concept that there's a world out there that's solid and real and is causing me to feel certain ways. So that when, in fact, we let go of these concepts and rest in emptiness, wisdom arises in a very natural and unpremeditated way. Also, compassion comes out of this emptiness. So it's really both wisdom and compassion are grounded in emptiness. What we see a lot of, all of these are, are based on having a concept of there's a me who's acting because there's a world out there that's affecting me. That we, we get in all these concepts that covers the natural arising of wisdom and compassion. There needs to be no repression and no judgment, however. I'm not suggesting that we try to repress the concepts. I'm not suggesting we try to deny their existence or push them away. When they're there, they're there. Okay? And the concepts are just as much God as the not concepts. But in terms of process, they get in the way. Yeah, I mean, he loved... There were a few people in our satsang who I found to be very unlikable people. And he loved them just as he much he loved me, which was quite remarkable. <laughs> he was not loving people because of their behavior, but it was just his nature to love. I mean, he didn't talk about wisdom in the same way Buddhists do. I mean, his whole teaching, Ramdas summarized in three words, love, serve, remember. Love everybody, serve everybody, remember God. There's a lot of wisdom in that if you start to unpack it, certainly. Maharaji was, he, he really was saying that in this present day and age, you don't do, need to do a lot of yoga. You don't need to try really hard. All you've got to do is open your heart and be kind to people and love people and feed people. And God will take care of the rest. Just remember God and love and feed people. Thank you all very much. It's been a pleasure being with you all.